Take your Bibles, turn to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. Let's begin reading in verse 1. We're going to read down through verse 13. We go from the good news of a very good creation to the other side of the coin, don't we? Genesis chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the trees of the fruit of, or the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is it that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Let's pray together. God, would you take your word, and as you have told us you would, would it be the, the sword that cuts to our hearts, that gets through all the distraction and all the covering and gets to our great sinfulness and need. God, we confess to you that we have become experts in covering and hiding, and we have experienced great shame because of the choices that we have made. And would you help us today, instead of running and hiding and making excuses, to own our sin and to run to the cross where there is forgiveness. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So we've been journeying together through Genesis 1 and 2 about how the world came to be and how God shaped it and repeatedly used his powerful word to create incredible things. And he said, they're all very what? Good. I don't know about you, but the world that I live in doesn't always feel very good. Anybody with me on that? I mean, really, all I have to do is pull out of my driveway and drive towards Tim's school on any given morning. And I encounter a paradox. Do you? So I drive right up Redwood Road. Those of you who know me know I'm terrible with directions. It's out there somewhere. Drive up Redwood Road from our house. We live just off Redwood, about a mile from here. 
and I turn right onto 114th, and I begin to go east. Isn't it beautiful to go east in this valley? What happens when you drive east? I remember when we lived in Steamboat Springs, Colorado, another beautiful place. Used to go skiing with my dad, and we would take the lift up to the top of the mountain. Storm Peak Express is what it was called. And we'd get to the top, and from the top of that mountain, you could just see the vastness of the west side of the Rockies. I remember standing at the top of that spot and looking down, and my dad, because we lived there, he would come in from the east where my parents lived. He would say to me, I hope you never get used to this view. But the sad reality is you kind of do, don't you? So I turn my car, and I'm driving east, and I'm just staring at the Wasatch Mountains. And this time of year with the fresh snow, and man, it's spectacular. And you see the greatness and the goodness and the splendor, the wonderfulness of God's creation, don't you? And then somebody cuts me off. (laughs) Like that dude in the big pickup truck that he lifted, and it's spewing black smoke out the tailpipe, right? It's got some inappropriate sticker in the back window. He's peeing on something or something, I don't know. And then he cuts me off, dives in the other lane, zooms past the next person, cuts off to the other side. Then we get to the stoplight. So I don't want to be in that guy's lane, so I'm in the other lane. And the light turns green. That's nice. Only my lane doesn't move. Because somebody at the front of the line is doing what? Texting. They're watching a video on their phone. They got bored in the three and a half seconds that the light was red. And now here I am, 12 cars back, and I'm probably not going to make the light. And I'll be late for school until, oh my goodness. Isn't that our world? Here is the good touch of the creator. But our daily experience, it sees that. But it's full of mess, isn't it? And here's the thing. The mess isn't just the guy with the big truck and the black exhaust and the inappropriate sticker in the window who cut me off. And it's not just the person who's on their cell phone and slowing down the line and the person who's drifting across the center lane into my lane. The mess isn't just outside of us, is it? The mess is in us. Because sometimes I'm the one cutting people off and not going at the green light and drifting across the lane. And it actually gets worse than that because it's not just my driving that makes a mess of things. It's also the sin of my own heart that makes me a poor husband, that makes me a selfish dad, that makes me a poor co-pastor, co-worker, leader, friend. It's everywhere, isn't it? And sometimes we just kind of want to throw our hands up and say, what in the world? What in the world itself? What in the world in me? And Genesis 3 tells us the other side of the story of the good creation that God made with the mess that we live in. Now we're going to take this chapter a little bit out of order. I told you we made some adjustments this week. Danny's actually going to preach the first part, which is pretty important, isn't it? Adam and Eve's deception and sin. But, but the part I'm responsible for, which actually fits wonderfully with communion this morning, starts in verse 7. And it's about the response. How do we respond to the sin that exists in our world and exists in our own hearts? Genesis 3 tells us our natural response. And I think if you're honest, 
you're going to raise your hand and say, yup, yup, me too. Look at verse 7. How do Adam and Eve respond to their sin? Verse 7 says, Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Because sin had been committed, because sin had entered the world, Romans 6 says, uh, For as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, Adam. And so death passed upon all men because all sin. So as they experienced sin, two things happened. The first was they had a newfound awareness. There was a realization, a new realization for them, and that was accompanied by deep shame. See what the verse says? Then their eyes, the eyes of both were opened. This is one, how can I say this well? This is one of the true lies of sin. You catch that? This is one of the true lies of sin. When Satan said to Adam and Eve, you'll get to know more and experience more and be like God, there was truth in what he said. There was an experience that they had that they had never had before. There was a realization. There was an understanding they now had that they did not have before they sinned. But can I tell you this morning, not all new realizations are good. This is one of the lies that the world tells, especially our young people. You're missing something by not trying sin. There's an experience you don't fully understand. And the truth is, there is. But the book of Romans actually warns us. Romans 16, 19 says that we should be wise concerning that which is good. We should know a lot and understand a lot and, and have a deep and rich knowledge of the things that are good. And listen to this, and be simple concerning that which is evil. There are things that it's good to not understand. And Adam and Eve all of a sudden understood something they hadn't understood before. Think about the adrenaline rush of a thief that gets away with stealing something. So they come up with this crafty plan. They get into a store and they steal something and they have to sneak out and they leave and all of a sudden they feel this adrenaline rush and this experience they've never experienced before. Is that good or bad? Think about the power of deception when someone first realizes that they can lie to someone and get what they want and the person in their minds never know. Think about the freedom that a child thinks they'll experience when they rebel against their parents and cast off all that um, oppress oppressive oversight of parents and they can be free. And what's that feel like when they first walk out the door? Feels free. They ran away from home with their little suitcase. But what happens when you get outside? The sun sets. It gets dark. There are many times when people are drawn to spiritual evil like the occult because they want to dabble in something and experience something they've never experienced before. And people are drawn to it. And we're drawn to experiences, aren't we? That, this is part of the whole sexual revolution. There are things you haven't experienced that you can experience. And sin will take us down that road, but there's a twist, isn't there? There's a cost. We've been teaching the teens from Hebrews 11 on living by faith, and it says this about Moses. Moses gave up everything he had in Egypt because he understood that following God and living God's way was worth giving up the fleeting pleasures of sin. 
So there's a new realization, but it's not a good one. It's been fun to live in the West and be around big animals, right? We have big animals out here. I grew up in New England where we had deer. They were cool, but I was like, I'll take your deer and raise you an elk. You know what an elk is? A killer deer. <laughs> Bam! <laughs> Saw one of those one time driving up a mountain pass at 50 miles an hour, standing broadside in the other lane. That'll wake you up, right? But when you go hiking, they tell you to avoid the bears. It's good advice. Bring your bear spray. Have a little bell. We don't have a bell when we hike. We have Tim. Tim is a walking <laughs> bell. We were hiking the other day, and people behind us were like, did you see that bear? I'm like, no, I have Tim. Bears are nowhere near us. How many of you have seen a video where a bear is chasing something? Anybody seen a video like that? There's an incredible video where a bear is chasing a mountain biker down the, and, and, and the mountain biker turns around, and you can see the bear. I don't know if it's a grizzly. It's a big bear, and it is galloping. I didn't know bears galloped, but that's terrifying. And then the video plays, he turns around, it's still there, and then it's closer. It's terrifying. I don't ever want to experience a large animal like that. If a bear came running down the trail at me, I would have a new experience. I bet my adrenaline would crank on a level I've never seen before. If I really got attacked by a bear, I would know something that none of us know in this room. What does it feel like to be clawed by a bear? What does it feel like to be bitten by a bear? I don't want to experience that. Neither do you. Because you understand there are experiences in life that are not good. And Adam and Eve, in their sin, all of a sudden feel completely different, and it's not a good feeling. Their new realization leads to deep shame. Do you see it? Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. They started hiding from each other and hiding from God. In contrast to the end of chapter two where they were completely secure and comfortable, they were now completely exposed. Much like Jonah, they made an effort to run from the presence of God. Verse eight says, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Do you know this is the God-designed effect of our sin? Is that we would feel shame. Is shame good or bad? We could spend the next hours <laughs> You'd probably have a weekend on shame and guilt and all their effects. But listen to this. Know this. God designed an antenna to go off in our souls when we do things that we know are wrong and it doesn't feel good. It causes fear. We feel guilty. A lot of those experiences we talked about earlier, they lead to future effects, don't they? And so Adam and Eve do what we often do. They hid. And isn't this our gut? Isn't this our natural reaction to our sin? Is to cover it up and to run and to hide. Now we all know that hiding from God is a fool's errand. Right? Our kids love to play hide and seek. None of us are effectively playing hide and seek with God. 
And God didn't ask where Adam was because he was confused or didn't know. He wanted to hear what was going on. Isn't it interesting that Adam doesn't answer God's question? What's God's question? Where are you? And the question Adam answers is, why am I hiding? Right? And what does he say? I'm hiding because I knew I was naked and I was afraid. I'm thankful for what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7 about guilt and shame. He says there's a good, godly sorrow that happens when we experience sin. But it has a purpose. Do you know what the purpose of godly shame is? Do you know what the purpose of the sorrow that happens in our heart is from God's perspective? It's to call us to turn back to him. To repent of our sin. It's not just that we feel bad that we're caught. It's actually that we say, God, this is wrong and I am sorry. And when shame and guilt have done that work in us, it's a good work and the work's supposed to be done. There's two problems we run into. One is we don't actually turn back to God and repent. We just ignore our shame or guilt or uh, go some other direction. The other problem that we have is that after we've brought it back to God, what do we sometimes still feel? Shame and guilt. But God has designed shame. You can read 2 Corinthians 7 this afternoon if you want to do a work in us. So Adam and Eve are caught in their sin. They realize what it is. They deal with deep shame, but then God goes further with them. Verse 11, God says to them, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. The Lord said to the woman, what is it that you've done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Here we have God's gracious confrontation. Aren't you thankful that God goes to find sinful people of which all of us are in that category? Aren't you thankful that he doesn't leave us alone? It seems to be from this passage that Adam and Eve had a regular time they spent with God in the cool of the evening. It's fascinating, isn't it, that that's still a time that fits for people to gather and get together? I don't know about your neighborhood, but like, especially in the spring and fall, that early evening when the work is done and the weather's still positive, (laughs) not getting rained on or scorched, it's a great time just to be together. And they had this regular routine. And Adam and Eve knew it. And so in their sin and in their shame, they did what? They hid. This is a good reminder for us as we have hard conversations, which, by the way, have become increasingly unpopular in our society, right? God actually wants us to be filled with grace and truth and to speak the truth in love to each other. Do you know the best people in your life to have hard conversations with you are the people who are close to you and love you. But we've kind of built barriers around ourselves to not have to have these conversations. But God comes into Adam and Eve's world and he says, can we talk? How did you know that? And he actually doesn't even wait for Adam's answer. He goes right to a direct question. Did you eat of the tree I told you not to eat? Can I encourage you as you have conversations with people and maybe you see something in their life or they see something in yours that concerns them? concerns you, that you lead with questions. Questions soften the will. Accusations harden it. And God goes right into Adam's world and he basically says to him, did you do what I told you not to do? And Adam responds in the very natural way that most of us do, which is what? 
<laughs> Blame your wife. It's not my fault. <laughs> In fact, between Adam and Eve, they kind of like fire shotgun, you know, fire of blame. Just is there, if there's anything we can hit, we're going to hit it. It's the only way I can hit a skeet flying through the air is if you give me a shotgun that'll spray nice and wide. Might hit it, a piece of it. They spray the blame. Isn't it interesting? Nobody has to teach kids this. Nobody has to teach us this at work. There's always a good reason for the wrong things that we do. At least there is in our own minds. And we justify ourselves and we blame other people. Who are the three people that Adam and Eve blamed? Blamed each other, especially Adam. It's the woman's fault. Who else did they blame? The snake. Who else? God. Now, were all those things contributing factors to their sin? Kind of. Right? Eve was the one who initially fell for Satan's deception and passed it to Adam. And isn't it true of us in our sin that often it's connected to other people? Misery loves company. Oftentimes when we sin, we're drawn into it with a connection to someone that we have in some way or someone we want to impress or someone who has an idea. It's fascinating to watch the little boys in our church grow up. Man, there are some ideas in there. And they find some stuff together. So it's connected to people. In, in a very real way, all our sin is twisting the good gifts God has given us. Is it true to some degree that if Eve didn't exist, then maybe Adam wouldn't have sinned? Kinda. But that doesn't make the creation of Eve and marriage and all that stuff bad. It's just that it got sideways. Is there a sense in which temptation happens in part because there is evil in the world and Satan is the tempter? Is that a piece of it for us? I was dealing with some of that even this week and I could feel like waves of temptation. You ever feel that? actually reached out to somebody and said, hey, it's going to be a tough day. Can you just pray for me? Was there an outside force at work? Sure. But was that the cause? Why did Adam and Eve sin? They sinned because of what Jesus said. It's not the outside factors that are the problem. The problem is what goes on in our own heart. James chapter 1 says, everyone is tempted when they're drawn away of their own desires and enticed. It's that fishing picture of the worm, right? We're enticed by what we want, and then we sin. The ultimate cause is in us. It's interesting, if you look at Adam's response in verse 12, God asks him a specific question, have you eaten? See that in verse 11? But look at verse 12. The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree. And what's the very last thing Adam says? Okay, I ate. It's the end of the sentence. And isn't this true of us? That's so often when our sin is brought to light, we're like, but, 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 and yes, I did it. Shame and blame. But sin ultimately comes down to our own hearts. Our hearts are drawn away from God. We capitalize our own desires. And we do something that we end up regretting. And more than doing something that we regret, we do something that dishonors and rebels against God. And this little section in Genesis tells us what comes naturally to us. Shame and hiding and blame. We were uh, at a timeshare 
in Las Vegas a couple years ago that was gifted to us. It was an amazing like, hotel with a water park and um, uh, lazy river and all this stuff. It was beautiful. And we went down to the Las Vegas Strip for one day. I'll be okay if I never go back there. That's a place. But we went to the M&M store. Anybody been there? It's pretty cool. That's more M&M stuff. We got our faces printed on M&Ms. That's kind of fun. Don't ask how much that costs. But anyway, it was fun. And while we were there, we bought Tim a pillow. It's royal blue. It's got the blue M&M on the front. Blue was his favorite color at the time. Now he's red, but there it is. Pillow's about this big. And uh, it has some cool like M&M saying on the back and it hangs out on Tim's bed. He loves it. But recently the pillow's gotten a new use. It's very interesting. How many of you have children who experience life very differently than you do? <laughs> Anybody have that? Okay, right? So whatever the makeup of, you know, you and your wife and whatever genetics are coming from, and then some of you have a space kid that makes no sense how they land in your family, what's going on there. But, but Timothy experiences the world through an incredibly emotional heart. It's, it's, it's very sensitive. He, he has all the feels. If, if you tell him, you know, something scary, he's wrapped up in the fear of it. If you tell him he, he experiences joy at a level that I've never, it's incredible. But Colleen and I have learned something. He feels deep shame and he struggles just to say, I'm sorry. And if he can get out, I'm sorry, it's, it's, it's even much harder to say, I'm sorry for whatever he did. And he'll run to his room and he'll take that blue pillow and he'll cover his face and he runs, and he hides, and he desperately wishes that he wouldn't have to deal with it. And here we are. We're his parents. Yes, we're upset. Yes, yes, it, we're sad. Yes, it hurts. Yes, all the things that sin does, we experience. But we loved him. And what we want desperately from him is just to come to us and say, I'm sorry. I was wrong. Here's what I did. Instead, he struggles with what we all struggle with, which is to run and hide and not have to deal with it. And what that on the back wall says to you today is that Jesus came and he died to take the guilt. He died to pay the price. He died for shameful sinners like us so that we don't have to hide behind our pillows and run from him. Can you hear the words of Jesus on the cross? Even for the people who were beating him and didn't get it, and he says, Father, what? Forgive them. His arms are spread wide this morning, asking us to run to him. He's not minimizing our sin. Listen, every single one of us sitting in this room is just like Adam and Eve. We're drawn away, we're tempted, and we say yes far more often than we would want to admit. There's not one of us with skeletons in our closet in this room today. We, we have a whole factory of them. Our lust, our greed, our hate, our disobedience. Some of us are making idols and worshiping stuff and 
not physically, but just in practicality in our lives. And we're a lot like Achan, who's trying to bury it in our tent and hope God doesn't notice. And you know what God says to us this morning? Don't run from me. Run to me. Don't harden yourself against me. Don't hide. Don't defend. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us. Humble yourselves, James says, and God will lift you up. Draw near to him, and he'll draw near to you. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Just own it. So I wonder, for you, are there some areas in your life where you are, if you're honest, you're running and hiding? There's, there's a cover-up going on. Is there some sin that God's putting his finger on in your life right now, and maybe only one or two other people know it, or maybe nobody knows it, but God is saying to you today, would you just come to me in your pride, in your self-righteousness, in that hidden thing that nobody knows, would you just come to me and say, God, I'm a sinner, and I need your forgiveness? I wonder more broadly than that if there's anybody here who's never taken that first step and said, actually, I'm a sinner who needs a savior. The famous songwriter John Newton who wrote Amazing Grace, they asked him later in his life what he had learned as a Christian, and he said, the longer that I follow Jesus, the more I've learned that I'm a great sinner, and he's a great savior. The cross is not God's place to cause you shame. Jesus took the shame. Jesus paid the price. Have you ever come to him? Have you ever run to him and said, I'm a sinner who needs a savior? May God help us to leave the natural response to our sin and follow his path, his way to healing, restoration, freedom from guilt and shame, rejoicing in the cross. Yes, I'm a great sinner, but Jesus, but Jesus. Let's pray together as the kids come in. God, we admit this morning that we are filled with struggles and sins. Our world is broken. Our hearts are broken. And we need your grace. We need your mercy. Your mercy is more. It's stronger than darkness. It's new every morning. Our sins are many, but your mercy is more. God, we thank you for your word. Would you do a holy work in each of our hearts? Would you release us from the bondage that our sin puts us in and free us to the life that we have in Christ. It's in his name we pray, amen.